In the section that we're in, in Romans 14, Paul's discussing what we know as the concept of Christian liberty, the freedom that we have as believers in Christ regarding matters, really things in which the Bible does not directly address things. In this overall section that we're in, starting back in chapter 12, and it goes through chapter 15, Paul is showing us practical examples of the believer as he lives out his life as a child of God. As the truths... Um, of a believer's salvation in the first 11 chapters of Romans have shown how are we now to live out those truths in our lives. Remember, the first 11 chapters was mostly doctrinal truths, but now how do we live in light of that? How are we to now function as Christians in light of what has occurred in our lives through salvation? First and foremost, we are, submit our, we are to be submitting ourselves to God. We are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. To make these bodies in which we live, really all that we have, serve Him in every way. And that is the most important thing that we could possibly do. The most important calling that we could possibly have to present ourselves as servants of the living God. And as we live for Him... We are to be making no provision for the lusts of the flesh. We are to be putting aside the things that might tempt us to sin, and we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, manifest His character in our very lives. We are to follow after His will. We are to understand His will through the studying of the Word and by the Holy Spirit's work through our study of the Word, and that brings a renewing of our minds and transforms us into mature believers. All of this is to take place in our lives. All of this is true of the Spirit-filled life that has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. As we come into Romans chapter 14, and we saw this, it's been three weeks ago now, but as we saw this in our first study, the first half of Romans chapter 14, we found Paul talking about these areas of liberty. Specifically, areas in this church at Rome pertaining to differences between Jew and Gentile backgrounds of that local body. That's where his focus really is here. He started talking about eating and drinking, as well as the observance of days. These are things that he mentioned there. And things, these are things that from a Jewish and Gentile perspective, the members would have had a widely diverse background with. But what we noted specifically about these areas, when we talk about this, and the thing that we need to keep in mind as we go through this chapter, is that he is not talking about areas of sin. He's not talking about areas that the Bible clearly teaches is right or wrong. The Bible is clear that it is a sin to lie or to steal or to commit, to commit adultery or homosexuality or to murder someone, right? We know that those things are clearly presented in Scripture as outright sins. Those types of things are not a matter of liberty. We never have the liberty or the freedom to disobey God. We never have the liberty to sin. But there are areas that the Bible doesn't explicitly command or forbid us to do. The examples that Paul presents here in Romans 14 are eating certain foods drinking certain drinks, observing certain days. But the concept presented here can carry over into other areas of our lives as well, right? These things specifically that the church at Rome were going through may not be things that we are going through, but this carries over into other things. We don't have as much issue with days of 
for festivals or, or eating bacon or ham sandwiches, right? That would have been something that would have been very near and dear to their hearts. That would have been something they would have issues over. But we talk about things today like music, TV, movies, uh, dancing, playing cards, right? Things that through either distant or even not so distant history, some people have had very strong convictions about these types of things, while other people look at those lists and think, that's no big deal. We could probably all come up with our own examples of things that would fall into this area of liberty. Now, as Paul is writing to the Romans, there would have been pretty strong convictions on both sides of many of these types of issues. The Jewish Christians were used to the restrictions that they were under from the law. They had grown up in that system. There were many things that throughout their lives they were to abstain from. The Gentile Christians would have had different religious practices and customs that they were used to as well. Things that they had grown up with, that they had known all their lives. And yet they had all become saved, both groups had become saved in or near this city of Rome, and here they were called to function together as a body of Christ. How were they to resolve those differences? How were they to function together? Well, this is what Paul dealt with really in the first half of the chapter, and he started talking about the stronger and the weaker brothers. And now in the context of Romans 14 and 15, the weaker brother is the one who has certain convictions in his life that either prohibit him from doing things or maybe require him to do certain things. He can't eat meat. He can't drink certain things. He must observe a day over and above the rest. Or maybe he feels that there are things on that day that he just simply cannot do. The stronger brother in this context is the one who recognizes that he has freedom when it comes to these things. He can eat meat. He can drink. He doesn't have to elevate one day over the other. And if he wants to go out and work on his field on a Saturday or a Sunday, he's going to go ahead and do that. So that is the context of the weaker and stronger brother here. Now, these definitions sometimes cause consternation amongst believers. Some see these definitions as being backwards. They would see the strong believer as the one who resists doing the things that he should not do. And the weak believer being the one who gives in and does them. Right? Sometimes they would say, well, I'm strong because I recognize that I should not eat that. I refrain myself from eating it. But he's weak because he doesn't abstain from it. He goes ahead and eats it. Now, when it comes to areas of sin... There is some truth to that. Those types of definitions make sense. That's when it comes to giving in to temptation, right? Somebody that gives in to adultery, right? We would say they were weak. They, didn't, they were not strong enough to resist that temptation. But once again, we need to understand the context here in Romans chapter 14. Strength and weakness, as Paul is dealing with them here, are related to liberty. Whether or not you recognize the freedom that you have to do something. And we can really define them as the strong brother being the more mature believer. And the weaker brother is less mature, doesn't have the same level of understanding or knowledge of the word. And this will become even clearer as we go through our passage today. 
In the first 12 verses, Paul had really one point to make regarding the two sides as he, as he introduced this. And it wasn't who was right and who was wrong. It was that no matter which side you were on in this matter, you were not to be judging your brother. You were not to be treating the other believer with contempt. Whether we're talking about a weaker or a stronger brother, we're still talking about a brother in Christ, a brother or sister in Christ. A believer, a fellow Christian who has placed his faith and trust in the gospel and is a member of the household of God. As a child of God, a believer's responsibility is to the Lord, to bring glory to him, and it's to him that we must all give an account someday. He said in verse 10 of chapter 14, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The weaker brother should not be judging his brother. The stronger brother shouldn't be looking down on his weaker brother with contempt. The point that Paul was making here is that we don't answer to one another. But we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and we will all give an account to the Lord for what we have done in our Christian life. And that includes the way that we interact and treat one another. He said in verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It is to God that we will give an account. And as we mentioned last time, that's not to say that we don't have responsibility when it comes to each other to confront one another when it comes to sin. We see in places like Matthew chapter 18 that the first step of church discipline is to be reproving our brothers when it comes to sin. We reprove each other in private. But again, in matters where God does not give explicit, clear instructions, who are we to make that determination for him? And expect others to hold to our convictions on the matter. That's really what we're getting at here. Then they aren't giving an account to God. If we're confronting them on these matters of liberty, they're not giving an account to God. We are expecting them to give an account to us. And that's not who they need to give an account for. There's no precedent for that. That's not what's going to happen. It was apparent in the first half of the chapter that Paul was speaking to both weak and strong brothers in his comments. But now as we come to the last half of the chapter, we're going to see how Paul is going to, re to turn his attention predominantly to the stronger brethren. And he's going to further explore the responsibilities that they have towards their weaker brethren. When it comes to these matters, the greater burden is on the stronger brother. He has more responsibility because he realizes that he has freedom to do something, but that also means that he has the freedom not to do something. And that will be key in this discussion. Because of his convictions, the weaker brother does not have that same level of freedom. He is limited in what he can do in the decision that he can make. So look with me at what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Therefore, because of all, we are all going to give an account of ourselves to God, right? He's relating this back to that topic. Stop judging one another. 
The verb tense here indicates that this is what was going on in Rome. This is what they were doing. This was the matter that Paul felt compelled to write to them about because this is what was going on. They were judging one another. They were treating each other this way. Now again, judging is not our responsibility. It's not our place to say when it comes to matters of liberty like this. And that's not to say that we can't ever have a discussion with one another amongst ourselves about our convictions or talk about why we disagree with something. This is, you see it this way, I see it this way, let's get together, let's discuss that. I think one of the most meaningful things that we can do together is sit and discuss biblical issues. Discuss our convictions, talk about how we seek to glorify God in our own lives and to get to know one another in that way. What are your convictions on this? This is how I see it. Maybe in the course of these discussions, one of us changes our mind about something. Maybe we get a perspective on something that we never considered before. But it needs to be a discussion done in love, not confrontational, not judgmental, but a loving discussion amongst believers. So we don't judge one another, but rather, Paul says, determine this. And he's using a play on words here. The word for, deter for determine, that's the, my translation, other translations might have another word, but the word for determine that's here is the same word for judge. Don't judge your brother, but instead judge this. Instead of making up your mind that he is wrong about something, make up your mind to do this instead. Turns it from the wrong type of judging to the right type. So what is the right thing to judge here? Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I should never be caught in a situation where I have put an obstruction or a stumbling block in the way of the growth of a fellow believer. I should never be the cause of another believer having his walk hindered, having his growth stunted, having his convictions violated. Paul is directing his instruction here to the strong brother, the one who has the freedom to do something. The weak brother doesn't have that same level of freedom because of his conviction. Now this gets into a difficult issue with liberty. I may have the liberty to do something, I may have the freedom to do something, but that doesn't mean that it's okay for me to do it. This is what Paul is getting at here. I may have liberty to do something because it's not prohibited by God, but if that activity causes another believer to stumble, to violate their convictions, then at that point, it's no longer okay for me to do it. I have the liberty, but how should I exercise that liberty? If I have a strong conviction on something, then because of my conscience, I am only free to operate within those restrictions. If I feel that I can't play cards, for instance, right? We'll just pick on something. If I feel that I can't play cards, and, if, and, and that it, if that violates my convictions, then I am not free to play cards. But if I recognize that playing cards is a matter of liberty, and I realize that they're just little pieces of paper with pictures on them, then I am free to play them, but I am also free not to play them, right? Just because somebody sets a pack of cards down on the table, that doesn't mean, well, I have liberty to play them, so I have to play cards. No, I can put them away. 
I don't have to touch them. So having the liberty to do something doesn't mean that I have to do it. It means that I am free to do it or free not to do it. There are different ways in which the weaker believer can stumble here. He can be tempted to join in, which violates his conscience, right? He's in a situation where there's a bunch of people all doing one thing. Somebody brings out the pack of cards. He doesn't think that playing cards is something that he should be doing. He doesn't think that would be glorifying to God. Well, now, all of a sudden, the peer pressure aspect comes in, right? Well, everybody else is doing it. I don't think it's right, but I guess I'll play. So that would violate his conscience. He, he can begin to lose confidence in someone with whom he views as a spiritual leader or mentor. Wow, that's not a good thing to do, and yet they're involved in that. It may cause a division or a rift between two people because they don't agree, or they get into an argument or see each other as adversaries because of this, just like we saw in the first part of Romans 14. There are different ways in which he can be affected by this act. Verse 14 Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now in this verse, Paul gives a parenthetical aside here to clarify really what's going on. For his part, Paul says he's, he knows and is convinced. He has full knowledge and understanding in this issue. We have to remember that when we read in Scripture about Paul knowing or having an opinion on something, that's inspired knowledge that he has. That's an inspired opinion that Paul has here. Therefore, Paul's knowledge on this is correct. Nothing is unclean in itself. We have to take this in context with what Paul's discussing here. Again, we're not talking about sin, and I'll... I'll bring that up several times, right? Because I want to make sure that we get that firmly in our brain. We're not talking about sin. He's not saying here that there is no activity that you can do that's defiling. Or that there's nothing that we can do that isn't considered um, unclean. But what he's saying here is that in the way of food or drink, there is no substance. There is nothing that in and of itself is unclean that can cause spiritual defilement in us. That's not the way that spiritual defilement works. That's not where it comes from. Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. There's a couple different passages that we can look at that show really the same idea. The fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul is giving Timothy instructions concerning false teachers. Men who speak falsely, they do not speak the truth. And down in verse 3, of 1 Timothy chapter 4, we see at least a part of these falsehoods that they speak. Uh, breaking into verse 3, he says, they advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Once again, we see the discussion here around foods. These false teachers were advocating for abstaining from certain foods. And Paul denounces that. He says, that's not true. Now, this doesn't mean that everything, this isn't a verse that talks about everything that you ingest is good for you. Right? He's not talking about healthy foods versus unhealthy foods. 
I had a conversation with a friend one time that I worked with. He came to me one time just out of the blue and said, Twinkies are healthy. I'm like, what? Twinkies are healthy. They're, they're healthy. They're good for you. Why do you say that? Well, because if you were stranded on a desert island and all you had were Twinkies, they would keep you alive. Therefore, Twinkies must be good for you. They must be healthy. Well, that was a fun discussion. I disagreed with him over his term healthy in that case. But that was a fun discussion to have. But that's not what this verse is talking about. What Paul, what Paul is saying here, this is not that type of argument. Paul's talking about whether or not a food that God has created for our good, and I guess you could throw Twinkies into that bucket as well, but can that food, whatever it is, in any way defile you just by eating it? Does food have the ability to hinder your spiritual life in some way? The answer is no, it doesn't have the ability to do that. We can enjoy anything if it's received with gratitude towards the one who has provided it for us. Another passage, turn with me over to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7. This is one that we're probably more familiar with. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees see the disciples eat bread with unwashed hands, and they find fault with that, right? They find that to be defiling. And Jesus makes the case that to the multitude in verses 14 through 16, that food cannot defile a man from the outside. Well, in verse 17, the disciples ask him about this because they have a hard time understanding what he meant. But look at what he says in verse 18. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot, <laughs> excuse me, cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensu sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. What Jesus tells his disciples here is this is the point that Paul is getting at as well. The stronger believer of which Paul counts himself understands what Jesus is saying here. He realizes that food or drink do not defile. Inanimate objects do not defile someone. It's what people do with those things. It's the actions that men do that come from within their hearts that defile them. Their attitudes while partaking or not partaking of those things. That which goes into the mouth cannot defile you. But turn back to Romans chapter 14. Paul continues on in Romans 14. So he gives this aside, verse 15. Um, but then we have convictions, and those make a difference. He says, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And this is a subjective element to the argument. To the one who has a strong conviction about eating something, if he does it, then to him it is unclean. 
It still doesn't make the food or drink or whatever it is unclean, but it relates along with what we just saw in Mark chapter 7. It's about the motive of his heart. If you believe in your heart that it is wrong and you do it anyway, then you have violated your conscience. And that is spiritually defiling. To you, it would be sin. It's a personal matter since you believe that it's something that God would not want you to do. And you did it anyway. So remember, back in verse 8, the overriding principle of having these convictions is because we do them for the Lord. That is to be our motivation for everything that we do. Paul gives an example of this in 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with me. And we'll read a couple verses here. You might want to leave a marker because we'll come back here a little bit later as well. First Corinthians 8, he's discussing the issue of whether or not believers should eat something that has been sacrificed to idols. In the church of Corinth, it was predominantly Gentiles that he's dealing with there. But they had their own issues about things that they could and couldn't eat. And we looked at this briefly in our last lesson, right? Showing that this isn't just a Jew-Gentile issue. It's also a Gentile-Gentile issue. But look down at what he says in verse 4. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So what's an idol, right? First thing we think of here, what's an idol? It's not a real God, right? It's a piece of wood or stone. It's nothing. There is no other God that exists. Therefore, something sacrificed to an idol has been sacrificed to nothing. But some in the church at Corinth had convictions about this. They had come out of these False religions where this was a big deal. And in their spiritual immaturity, they were weak. They did not have the knowledge in this area. And so Paul says this in verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. This is what defiled them. Not the food itself, but the fact that because they did something that went against their conscience, that is what defiled them. So again, come back to Romans 14. Keep a finger or a marker in 1 Corinthians 8. We'll be back there in a minute. Look at verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Having established the what's right and what's wrong in verse 14, he goes back to the matter that he was addressing back in verse 13. Do not put a stumbling block in the way of the weaker brother. But wait a minute. If he's the weaker one, if he's the one who doesn't understand this liberty that we have, isn't this his problem? Shouldn't he be the one to get it right instead of interfering with what I want to do? Instead of interfering with what I have freedom to do? Instead of interfering with my rights? I mean, we did just establish that eating the food is not the problem. That recognizing that I can eat is perfectly fine and eating it isn't the issue. So isn't that a valid viewpoint? No. Because there's one major problem with that attitude. What's that problem? 
I don't normally ask people questions, but if you want to answer, go feel free. That's not love. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. We are to be indebted to each other in love. We are to be manifesting a self-sacrificial attitude towards those around us. And if our attitude is self-sacrificing, what does that mean? It means that there are things that we are willing to sacrifice, doesn't it? Especially if they are things that hurt our brother. Hurt here is a deep pain or grief. If I am willing to hurt you, cause you harm in any way, then I am, I am not loving you as I should be. And the omission of doing what I'm supposed to be doing is sin, right? If I'm supposed to be loving you and I'm not, I'm in sin. Referring again back to Mark chapter 7. If I eat a ham sandwich in front of you, knowing that it causes you to stumble, we've had this discussion, I know this about you, and I make it a point every time I see you that I've got a ham sandwich ready, then I have sinned. I have defiled myself if I cause you to stumble, if I put that stumbling block or obstacle in front of you. Not because eating the ham sandwich was defiling, but because I'm doing it in selfishness, or I'm doing it to be malicious, or I'm doing it with contempt towards you. And my heart is not right. So I am defiled because that improper attitude is coming from here. It's coming from my heart. Do I have liberty? Yes, I do. But again, we need to understand that liberty means that I have the freedom to do something, but I also have the freedom not to do it. And there are times when I need to choose not to do it. Paul brings out the prime example of this at the end of the verse. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. This is the perspective, and it's a it's an extreme perspective, but it's the one that we need to have on this. We talk about love, right? That's what he's talking about here. How did Christ show love? What sacrifice did he make for that fellow believer? He died for him, right? He gave his life for him. And now you're not willing to give up that ham sandwich for him? You're not willing to give up a glass of wine? You're not willing to give up watching a movie or playing a weekly card game for your fellow brother? Do not destroy him, Paul says here. There is damage done when a weak Christian is caused to violate his conscience. Now, he's not talking about a loss of salvation. That's not possible. That's the, we're not talking about him undergoing condemnation. But there can be things like a loss of fellowship. There can be a guilty conscience that causes him to lose fellowship with the church that affects his walk with God. If you have encouraged him to violate his conscience, then you have caused a fellow believer to sin. And that sin is always damaging. Always. What would ever make me think that it's okay through my actions to harm or destroy someone for whom Christ died? Turn again back to Romans, or uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 8. Told you to keep a marker there. 
This is the most I've spoken in, I don't know, a long time, so bear with me with keep taking drinks. First Corinthians 8, we'll pick up where we left off last time. Look at verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You see the similarities throughout here with what we're seeing in Romans chapter 14. Ruining your brother, the one for whose sake Christ died, sinning against Christ by causing him to stumble. So what's Paul's conclusion? I'll fix him. If if he's stumbling so much, I'll fix him. No. He says, I would rather never eat meat again than cause my brother to stumble, to ruin or to destroy him in any way. Why? Because it's not just a sin against him, it's a sin against Christ. You see, this is a serious issue. This is more than just food or drink or deck of cards. Jesus Christ is working in the life of that fellow Christian. He's working to mature them, to sanctify them. He's preparing them for the coming kingdom. And I want to prove a point about the freedom that I have. I want to decide to have a drink in front of them, to have a ham sandwich in front of them, to make it an issue of my rights when I know that they have a problem in that area? Causing them harm? That's not love to them. That's a sin against Christ. Back in Romans 14, he says in verse 16, Therefore, do not let what is good for you... I'm sorry. Therefore, do not... Let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. So this freedom that you have, it is a good thing. It's freedom that we have in Christ. Remember what we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul there called all things created by God good, right? All food is good. That is a blessing that we have in Christ. Now those who were under the law, there were very few gray areas, right? You think back to the Jews. There were many more rules that were spelled out for the people of God. Many things that they couldn't enjoy. They, weren't, they were forbidden. Many people grew up, they never had a ham sandwich. Never even touched their lips. Now we have more freedom than that, right? Having been freed from the law through the death of Christ on the cross. So there's no denying that our freedom in these areas, it is a good thing. But be careful, don't allow this good thing to be spoken of as evil. How much good is this liberty if I'm using it in a way that harms my fellow believers? If I am neglecting my obligation of love to them, then it's not good, it's evil. Verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is life about? You ask people, what's life about? 
Is it about all the food that we can eat and all the things that we can drink? Is that what life is about? You take, to take full advantage of every freedom that we have? That's what the world thinks, right? Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Live life to the fullest, no matter the cost. That's the attitude of the world, which as you'll remember, back in chapter 12, we're not to be conformed to the world. We're not to have the same type of attitude that the world has. No, our lives are being transformed into the image of Christ. We are here to glorify God. We are being prepared for an eternity in the kingdom of God where we will spend our lives in the very presence of our Lord in glory. What are the things that we should be concerned most about? Where should our focus be? Not on food and on drink and on what we can do on certain days. He lists three things here that should be our focus. He mentions righteousness, right? We have been declared righteous by God. It should characterize our actions. Peace. We have peace with God through Christ. We were enemies of God. Now we stand with God on his side at peace. And we should be at peace in our relationships with one another as well. Joy. This is another characteristic of the believer. This is produced by the Holy Spirit, part of our relationship with one another that we can have through our relationship with Christ. We are to have joy with one another. If we're at odds with each other, if we're adversaries with one another, there's not much joy there, is there? Our concern should be on giving glory to God and to showing love towards one another. Not how much freedom I have, Nobody better tell me to give up my freedoms. I have a right to do this, and nobody better try to take this away from me. Has that ever been our attitude? It's on the stronger believer here that this burden is placed. To give up his liberty for the well-being of the weaker believer. It says in verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Having this attitude, giving up my liberty for the sake of someone else, shows our proper attitude of service to Christ. We are putting their needs and what is best for them above ourselves. When we talk about self-sacrificial love, that's what we're talking about. We talk about self-sacrificial love, but do we really understand what sacrifice means? Sacrifice means we give things up. Right? That should be our attitude. And it says, this is acceptable to God. This is well-pleasing to him. I am willing to give up my favorite drink, my card game, anything else that I might enjoy, if these things were a stumbling block to a fellow believer. This type of attitude is part of my service of Christ, and it's well-pleasing to him. And approved by men. He throws that in here again. This is a consideration for us as believers as well. We saw this back in chapter 12, verse 17. He said, respect what is right in the sight of all men, right? We, we have a witness to uphold before all men. We, what we do matters in the eyes of others, including in front of other believers, right? We need to be conscious of that. If we give preference to them in love, then that will be appreciated by them as well. It's well-pleasing to God, and it's appreciated by those around us. So by giving preference to our weaker brother in this area, it's seen as a good thing both before God and before men. And really, 
That's all-encompassing, right? You have God and men. That's it. Verse 19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So here Paul draws a conclusion. We are to pursue, and the word pursue has the idea of eagerly chasing after something. It's not just, oh, that'd be a good idea. No, this is, this is what we chase after. This is more than just giving in on occasion. This is looking for ways to make peace. This is looking for occasions in our life that might cause others to stumble and making sure that we do not bring them up as an issue. Let us look for that course of action that will not cause our brother to stumble, that will not cause a loss of fellowship, that will not cause a rift or a problem area between us so that we're no longer at peace with one another. We should never see our Christian brother as a, or sister as a foe, as an adversary in these issues. We ought to be at peace with them. So we pursue the things that make for peace. But also we pursue the building up of one another. Right? That's the edification of the church. That's what the church's purpose is. That's, that's why we are here together. Right? This ought to be our focus in our service in the church and utilizing our spiritual gifts. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, when he's talking about the speaking gifts, that they're for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We should be anxiously striving towards building one another up to be growing together as individuals and as a church body. When my attitude is truly what's best for them, what's best for you, what will bring you to greater maturity, keep you from sin, keep our relationship and unity together, then where does that leave room for me demanding my own way? and causing you to stumble into sin. Verse 20, the very beginning of the verse, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. That almost sounds like a ridiculous concept, because it is, and that's what Paul's getting at here. So our job is to be building one another up. When we cause a brother to stumble, we tear down the work of God. God is working in that life. That person is doing all that he can to glorify God in his own body, to serve him. And we would interfere in that work over food, is the example that Paul uses here. Because we have a point to make regarding our liberty. This is a serious issue, and so he reiterates once again, all things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Paul restates his point from verse 14 again. All things are good. There is nothing in itself that can defile a man. As well as the point that he was making in verse 16, leading, letting a good thing be spoken of as evil. If I eat something or do something that gives offense to a brother that causes him trouble, that causes him to stumble, then that which is clean and I have the liberty to do has now become evil. And it's no longer all right for me to do. So like we said before, having liberty to do something and whether or not it's okay to do it are not the same thing. Here we see that it can be said that this area of liberty can be sin for 
both parties, right? For the weak, it is sin because it violates their conscience. You've caused them to do it. But isn't it their responsibility? Yes, it is. It's still sin on their part. They violated their conscience. They shouldn't have violated their conscience. But it's sin on your part because you're giving offense. And they're stumbling because of what you did. So now you're both in sin. Verse 21, is it, it is good not to eat meat or, or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So for the first time here, Paul brings in the drinking of wine to the discussion. But, but his point here is to include it all. Whatever you eat or drink or anything else that you do, it is not good to do anything that will cause your brother to stumble. We get concerned because this attitude can seriously cramp our lifestyle. We think of this and we think, oh, what are the things? What are the things that I would have to give up? What are the things should I give up? What are the things that I would be willing to give up? A pastor at a church that we used to go to years ago, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, got into an issue one time because he bought a sports car. He bought this nice cherry red sports car. I don't know what kind it was. That was an issue. People in the church start talking. Why, why did he buy that? Why is he driving around in that? Why did, how much money did he spend on that? He, was that a good use of money? Could he have spent that on other needs in the church? Could he, how much are we paying this guy? That all this stuff starts coming up over it. Well, he got rid of the car. It was causing offense, so he got rid of the car. Now, did he have to? No. There's nothing in Scripture that says, pastor can't have a sports car. Buy a car. Buy whatever car you want. But it caused an issue with people, so he got rid of it. In fact, he, I think he sold it to somebody else in the congregation. They didn't have a problem about that, but <laughs> it was still in the congregation. But it was an area of liberty. And there was no beer, clear biblical instruction, but it became a problem, so he removed the stumbling block, right? He was willing to do that. What we're talking about here sometimes means cramping our lifestyle, giving up things that we may enjoy. But so what? What does that really matter? Keep it in the perspective that Paul does here, right? Christ gave up his life for that person, and I want to go die on a hill for my right to eat that, to drink something. That's how we ought to view this. Now, does that mean that the stronger brother can never do these things, right? I'm sure probably many of us are thinking, does that mean that oh, I've got to give up these things forever? Is this the case where, oh, I know one person that might have a problem with me doing this, so... I should never do that at any time under any circumstances. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about doing it as a cause of someone else to stumble. That doesn't mean that I can't partake of something in my own home, right? If I have ham in the fridge and I want to make myself a ham sandwich, I'll make a ham sandwich. If I go over to somebody else's house and they're serving ham sandwiches and everybody there is okay with eating ham sandwiches, and we all love to eat ham sandwiches, then by all means, eat a ham sandwich. But when someone else is there and they object or they have a problem, then forego the ham sandwich. Okay? They also made turkey. I'll have a turkey sandwich. Now there's also a reminder to the weaker brother here as well. Don't be judging the stronger brother for what he eats or what he does, whatever the situation is. Right? We saw that earlier in the chapter. While Paul recognizes the differences in people's convictions, he also made it clear that the stronger brother's convictions are valid here. He can eat. He's not in sin for just eating or drinking, right? Paul has mentioned a couple times already that these things are good. 
But sometimes the weaker brother has the attitude, well, I don't eat that, and nobody else should either. So not only should they not eat it in front of me, but I don't want them eating it anywhere at any time. And I think they should refrain at home. I think that they should refrain when they're out with someone else, and I'm going to call them on it. I'm going to sit at home, and I'm going to think, he might be eating a ham sandwich right now. That's not an acceptable attitude either. Especially after we just saw what Paul said here. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. In verse 14. So while there is a greater burden on the stronger believer here, and he should have that willingness to give something up in certain situations, the weaker believer isn't without responsibility in this. The weaker believer needs to be, he needs to mind his own convictions, and we'll see that in the final verses here. But he also needs to make sure that he's not trying to become the judge for his stronger brother either, which we saw back up in verses 3 and 4 and in verses 10 through 12. So together, as a church, we have pursued peace and edification with our brother. We have served God by showing love to our brother. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. This again here, I think, is to the stronger brother. The faith you have, the recognition of your liberty, this is your conviction that you are to have before God. There is conviction on both sides. I may have convictions that I can't eat, or I may have convictions that I am free to eat, but either way, these are my convictions before God. Here, the faith, their faith has allowed them to realize what Paul has been saying, that there is freedom in these matters. For those that have this realization, this faith, there is a joy in knowing that this freedom exists. Liberty is a blessing. It is something that we can take joy in knowing that we have, even if we don't always exercise that liberty. Just because I don't exercise that liberty doesn't mean that I don't have the freedom. Forgoing the exercising of my liberty doesn't mean that I've given up my conviction about something. It doesn't mean that I'm agreeing with the weaker brother that they're right about it. I may choose to not partake of something, but it's not because I don't believe that I have liberty to. It's because I am deferring to my brother in love. And so that he won't stumble by seeing me partake of that or hearing about my having done so. Verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Here he concludes with a statement to the weaker brother, or about the weaker brother. If you have doubts, if you don't have faith that you can do something, then you shouldn't do it. Do you think that God wouldn't want me to do something? I shouldn't do that. It's all about pleasing God. It's all about glorifying Him. If I've decided something, if I've decided that I'm not going to go shop at a certain store because they support gay and lesbian rights or something like that, then and that bothers me to go into that store, then I should not go in there. I shouldn't shop there. If I've decided that having a glass of wine is not pleasing to God, then I shouldn't have a glass of wine. If I've decided that going into a restaurant that has a pagan idol sitting in the lobby, and it makes me uncomfortable, and I feel that that display isn't honoring to my Savior, then I shouldn't go into that restaurant. And not only that, I shouldn't let others convince me against my conscience. 
Maybe they'd say, well, that idol in the lobby is just wooden stone. Come on in. It's made out of plastic. Come on in. There's no God behind it, so it doesn't matter. And so I go in and I eat a meal bothered in my conscience the whole time. That's not good. Or maybe they'd say, well, shopping at that store um, that supports those groups, you can't find a store that doesn't support them these days. And they have, we have no control over what they do. And maybe in both of those cases, they're right. But if I'm not convinced of it in my mind, then I shouldn't do it. That's the point here. Maybe someday I'd understand my liberty in those areas differently. But until I do, I am not free to do that. That's the point here. We all have convictions in different areas. We all strive to please God in the best way that we understand how. And as we study and as we read His Word and as we grow in our understanding, we become more mature, we gain knowledge about different things. That's one of the joys that we have as Christians, knowing that what we do, we do to glorify and please God. And we do it with the knowledge that we have. It's to Him that we'll someday give an account. To Him that we need to be found well-pleasing. As we end for today, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll just look at one couple of verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 sums it up pretty well. Look down at verse 31. Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, giving no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, but just, or just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. That's what it's all about, to glorify God and to see all men saved. That's it. That's what ought to dictate all of our actions. How does it glorify God? How does it advance the cause of the gospel? How does my act, in whatever area it is, edify you, strengthen you, so that we might be unified together in going out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory and honor? Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, we thank you, Lord, for our opportunity here in the book of Romans. We thank you for these truths that you've presented to us here. We thank you, Lord, for these examples and for the, the teaching on the liberty that we have. We thank you, Lord, that you have set us free from sin. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we do have in things. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to guide, uh, to have all of our actions guided and, and uh, uh, constrained by the love that we have for one another. We pray, Lord, that as we seek to build each other up, to edify one another, Lord, to honor you, that we would be mindful of the things that we do in all things, and that we would be just uh, willing to do whatever is necessary for the good of, of each other. I thank you, Lord, for the truths that we have here today. I thank you for our opportunity to come together and study your word, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd be with us as we go into the next hour as well. I pray for Josh as he brings us the word once again, and pray that you would give us understanding as we hear the word, as we worship you, Lord, and pray that it would be a time that would honor you. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.